Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. This is Podcast 17.3, which, like the magazine, is marking the 100th edition of the Giro d'Italia. We'll be hearing from a variety of pros and former pros on their experiences chasing the Malia Rosa. And we have a fascinating interview with the always inventive Graham O'Brien. Still a legend and a maverick, nearly 25 years since he first broke the World Hour record. Plus, of course, the ruler competition. Well, the centenary Giro begins in Sardinia, before island hopping to Sicily, including a summit finish on Etna, before working its way up from the very tip of Italy's toe to a finish in Milan. There are those who'll tell you that the Giro is the true essence of road racing. The Tour de France sucks up all the attention and glory, but the Giro is for the true connoisseur, the genuine Tifosi. David Miller rode it five times, won two stages and wore the pink jersey. But his memories are nuanced. Well, it's Italian for starters, so it's chaotic. Yeah, it's, the Giro is just, it's Italian, isn't it? If you know Italy and you know how th- things are organised in Italy, it, it always is a little bit haphazard and a bit autocratic, but without any decent autocratic organisation. It's, uh, it's a very mad place, which in many circumstances can be charming, but not in the Giro d'Italia. It's, it's doesn't, I don't find it so charming when you're doing 250k stages back-to-back with 6,000 metres climbing in the fi- final few days of a Grand Tour. They would just make it more and more... You know what it's like when you do the Giro? It feels like you're part of a circus and you're one of the animals. The other races, it feels like you're working together, whereas the Giro, you feel like you're an animal in a circus. Yeah, that's a big difference. You, you must have some fond memories of the Giro, though. Um... Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've only got one. It's um, I no, the Giro was never, never really, kind of did it for me. But it's just the, the time trial stage I won in 2011. That was the final day, and my friend Nadav was there, and he followed the whole day, and that was really that was quite a magical day actually. Yeah, I remember that vividly, and yeah, so that, that's my fondest memory. That's kind of I should have never gone back. I went back in 2013. I had a horrible 12 days. <laughs> yeah. David Miller. Jens Vogt rode the Giro three times. He's a little more enthusiastic. The Giro is just a different race. I would even go that far to say, in terms of profile, the Giro is harder than the Tour. The difference is just in the Tour de France, you have probably 10 people you want to go for a win. In the Giro, we have three people you want to win. In the Tour de France, you have 150 riders you want to win a stage. 
In the Giro, maybe you have 20 riders that want to win a stage. The pressure is a little less. But in terms of pure profile and altitude and the length of the stages and all that, I would say it's a little harder than the Tour de France. And having a leader with Ivan Basso in the uh, Maglia Rosa, uh, there was a bit of pressure on us, of course. But uh, we, yeah, we managed to pull it off, and it was a good, good event. What are the Italian fans like? What's, what's the experience of riding the Giro like compared, say, to the Tour de France? Well, the Tour de France, sometimes you feel in some corner it's the Tour of Britain, the next corner the Tour of the US or the Tour of Australia. Um, it's kind of like almost hard to find a French supporter anymore these days. You know, the Tour de France is such an international event. I mean, keep in mind, the Tour de France is the biggest yearly happening sports event in the world. Only every four years it gets topped by the Soccer World Cup or the Olympic Games. We are bigger than the Formula One Grand Prix in Monaco. We are bigger than the Super Bowl. We are, you know, the biggest sporting event in the world, and it's super international. The Giro Italia, you have a lot more Italian fans, and everyone speaks Italian. They like full of enthusiasm and passion. And as far as I can say, they're very fair fans. They cheer you up if you're winning the stage, or if you're dead last, they still yell at you and support you. I love that. Alex Dowsett is another Giro stage winner, taking a time trial stage on his debut. Unlike a lot of pros, Alex didn't spend his childhood dreaming of exploits in the Alps and the Dolomites. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a race car driver. Um, cycling didn't really register as a career move until, um, or uh, something I wanted to do in life until I got second to Ian Stannard in the schoolboys. 10-mile national finals. Um, I was 14 and everyone else in the top 10 was 16, so that for me. As a, as a kid, my because of my haemophilia and what I wasn't allowed to do in school in terms of football and rugby, I wanted to um, it just it creates a mentality that we see in a lot of young haemophiliacs now that you want to excel at something. Um, some rebel and just play football and rugby anyway and perhaps suffer the consequences, but they're lucky with the parents that they have and like I was lucky with mine, mine just saw that desire to do sport and be very good at something and uh, you know, and just sort of nudged me in the right direction and you know, when I was 13 I started uh, cycling and yeah, I realised a year later that that was what I was very good at and had the potential to be kind of world class at and then you know, subsequently obviously fell in love with it as well. But yeah, it, cycling wasn't something that registered. I wasn't like Swifty where I was doing my first bike race at two and a half years old. It was, um, yeah. So when you did actually, uh, 2013, wasn't it? The, the Giro was your yeah. first was your first Grand Tour. When yeah. you actually uh, went there, did it did it live up to your expectations? You did very well in the first year, but mm. uh, um, did uh, did it live up to your expectations as an event? No, no. It, like a lot of things, I think people like to scaremonger. So I was expecting it to be horrific. And it was just mostly unpleasant in terms of how hard it was. So um, it was kind of a pleasant surprise in the end, and you can kind of enjoy it um, in a weird sort of masochistic way. Um, it helped that I was I was in good shape. I wasn't. There was only one point in the Giro where I was like, "Oh, I might not finish this because I'm struggling." Um, and obviously, to get the stage win under my belt was was. Um, Huge and unexpected. It was it was a great experience actually. And you know, three weeks or three and a half weeks of your life, you just hand over to your team. You are away, cut off from the outside world a bit, and um, yeah, it's it's a weird kind of existence. 
We hear a lot about the sort of fanaticism and the enthusiasm of the fans in Italy. Um, did you experience that at all firsthand? What were the what were the crowds like in in Italy? Yeah, they were big. They were really big. They were no bigger than uh, we get in the Tour of Britain, though. So it's um, it was a great you know, it was a great experience, and I was lucky that my family came out for the time trial, which was just made it an unforgettable day. Yeah, you know they're out up the cold mountains in the snow, braving it out, and it's it's great because you need that. You do need that support when things are getting real tough. A month after the winner of the Giro crosses the line in Milan, the women's version, the Giro Rosa or Giro Donne, gets underway near Trieste. It'll finish ten stages later near Naples. It's the most important race on the women's pro calendar, and Megan Garnier of Bols Dolmans, last year's women's World Tour winner is looking forward to it. So when you came to Europe in 2008 for the first time and started racing over here, how much of a sort of culture shock was that to you, in particular, the racing? Yeah, um, I had just begun cycling and um, it, it, I've made it no um, secret that I don't, I don't know if I finished a single race during that, that first campaign, my first campaign over here. Um, it was really difficult, and that, that can either make or break you. And I, I came out of uh, that first trip and, and said to myself, I want to be the women at the front of the peloton. I don't know what they're doing up there, um, but I want to be one of those women at the front making the race and making it hard for people like me in the back um, because I don't know if I ever saw the front of the race in 2008. So, In 2009, you rode the Giro Rosa for the first time. Uh, and again, what kind of an experience was that? Because that's a, that's a very different race, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in 2009, I think it was just about surviving and learning Again, at that point, you're just in the learning phase and learning the race and um, what goes into racing that many days back to back. And uh, it's definitely an experience and and a a shock to the system. And what was it uh, like um, riding in Italy? In many ways, the sort of one of the great centres of cycling. What was the? uh, Sorry, just been uh, (laughs) that's Laura Trot running past. Um, what was it? What was what's the atmosphere like on a, on a you know on a substantial stage race in, in in Italy like the Giro Rosa? Yeah, I I love racing in Italy. I love racing, especially the Giro Rosa. Uh, one of the things that always one of the best things about it is, is the food, <laughs> and because uh, you, you always know you're going to get a good meal at the end of the day. And of course, the the terrain is beautiful, and the and it's and the the courses are always extremely challenging. And uh, that, that's what makes racing in Italy such an um, amazing and, and beautiful part of the season. Megan Garnier. Away from the Giro now to a true legend of cycling. There are those who invest millions in technology and research who micromanage every inch of the production and preparation process. And then there's Graham Abrie. Twice world pursuit champion, twice breaker of the world record, always a maverick always compelling company. I caught up with him at the Ruler Classic to get his take on the state of cycling technology and much more. Well, actually, I'm not that bothered about technology having moved on from my era because what I got was I was the best in my era. When you look at the advancements, for example, not name-dropping specifically, but if you look at the skin suits and the aerodynamics that, that, that Endura, which I'm involved in, and Alex Dowsett used... 
<coughs> to great effect and the huge difference that that's made in terms of wattages to go at the same pace then those weren't available in my era but I competed in a level playing field in that era so um, when I see the bikes it's, it's a, in a way there's two things happening with bikes one they've improved almost to the point of the maximum possibility for the regulations you can't see very much improvement unless the rules change and then they would, they would gravitate to maximum for that new rule so pretty much what's happened is you probably pick 10 bikes and the difference between them would be very little now, which is good if you want a level playing field and it to be accessible. That's very good. I didn't have them in my era, but that's OK. If you could only sort of change one rule that currently affects um, bike technology in, in, in races, what would it be? What's the one thing you think? Why do they still do that? The one thing I look at is team pursuit, because I like things that can really get your teeth into. I can never understand why do they not use the smallest possible wheels to the smallest possible wheelbase, because the length of the entire team matters in terms of how much energy has to be um, changed and then drop of pace and then speed of pace. OK, using the track to conserve momentum, but nonetheless, the size of the sweep and, and the, the whole... The other three riders passed the first rider. The amount of aerodynamic um, assistance then depends on the whole length of the team. So if you get a 26, a 700c wheel, then why would you not, if you're allowed a 650, why would you not have 650? And if you're allowed the wheel to be tucked right up against the bottom bracket shell, why would you not have that specifically for the team pursuit? That's one thing. Well, that was one thing you asked me. Give us another one, then, because that's fascinating. So give us another one. Well, you know what? Actually, I think what's happened in 20 years since I was at Cutting Edge is so much has happened. We now live in an exciting age where things are improving in, in terms of clothing rather than bikes. But I still see people who don't, especially triathletes, people who come from the triathlon side, people not maximising their positional opportunities when you consider the change of our position, the hand position, the elbow positions even the seat angle R racing bikes seem really really steep seat angles but I've gravitated going further and further back in the saddle from, it was, it was Sean Kelly started going on to this, he said, goes why don't you put that saddle back to get more power and I thought oh well there's a thought, if it comes from Sean I'm going to try that out that pushed me into changing my pedal stroke I talked about quite a lot of that stuff in my own training manual, which does need updated. But people who have glaring opportunities to change, but changes that could be made rather than just buying money for equipment when there's a glaring opportunity just for physical change of positioning that would make such a difference. It does seem to have got to a point now where the sort of thing that you were doing, i.e. experimenting in, in your home and, you know, trying a few, trying things out, building your own bikes, that it's got to a level now where that's almost impossible, isn't it? Well, I don't believe it is. Um, there is an nth degree where um, it's almost like carving something out of a piece of stone. The first bit, you're, trunk, uh, you're, you're hacking chunks of rock out of it. But an amateur could hack chunks of rock out of a, a bare stone to get a rough outline. Now, a lot of people could get to that by the fuel factor and, and being willing to change things up and down. Saddle height, crank length. I mean, if you're five, a new money, if you're 165 metres tall, 
then you shouldn't... This is affects lady riders more than anybody. You should not be using 170 cranks. Pro rata, you should be using 160s, 155s. In terms of everything being in line with the, the bone structure and the, and the, and the and, and, and scale with the, the length that it should be to scale with your body. But you, you don't see that. You see people using inappropriate crank lengths, inappropriate handlebar widths. So there's a whole lot of chopping and changing you could do an experiment for your body size and body form um, and honing down to roughly a position that suits you, getting close to it. Then go to bike fit people goes, I've honed this down as best I can. <clears throat> can you hone it further for me? But there's a whole lot of honing that people could do on their own on, on the basis that if it feels right, it probably is right. That sounds a little bit like the sort of much-discussed marginal gains, you know, the, the tiny little changes once you've, everyone's got to the same sort of playing field. Well, marginal gains is down to the real experts, of which I've been out of touch with that very, very finery, the very fine tune. But the whole big chunks can actually come with experimentation. And, and, it, and you could even use the roll-down technique, the old-fashioned roll-down technique. You roll down a hill or just... Not pedalling, but rolling down a hill and moving stuff about, and goes, oh yeah, that. Even you'd even time yourself down hills and try different handlebar positions and stuff. Get a rough idea in, in whole seconds of what's making a difference aerodynamically. Then once you get hone it down to a certain level, he goes, okay, that's as far as I can do with the rough bit of it, and then then turn up with as much as you can do yourself, and then go. That's so. So you've made a good start to the right direction before the fine honing. In addition to your sort of experimenting with the bike and the position, you were a bit of a pioneer in terms of training as well, weren't you? You were a pioneer in particular in the use of, sort of things like turbo trainers. Well, I became absolutely obsessed for the very real reason that, that I wanted a turbo trainer to be made or change my turbo trainer and cut bits off of it, literally take wind aspects off of it because the air pressure could change, being that particular about it. Let's say the pressure can go from 1,040 down to 960 or something. It's a 10% difference. So if you're using something that uses air resistance as a resistance, you've got a 10% change there. So I took it out, totally relied on mag magnetic resistance, cut any adjustment out of it, locked it, literally locked it in place so that that turbo trainer is the same every time, the same pump to pump the tyres up. And I'm pretty convinced I got my turbo trainer and tyre pump and pump set up to know that when I'm going on that turbo trainer, then if I compare to what I did before, then it's within quarter of a percent. Now, if, if well, we all know what it's like. If, let's say you're doing a 20 minute session, you get to 18 minutes, it goes, ah, I'm physically going to die. And, goes, ah, and if, if there's an inkling in your mind that, you know what, the air pressure's changed or something, if I'm putting that amount of effort in to, suppose I'm trying to do a, a session that's half a percent better, because that's what it comes down to half percentages over the course of 10 or 15 weeks. And you, you add up 15 half percentages. Now, that turns you into a top amateur to a world beta. But you've got to know, you, you, if the floor's coming up and down, you, you think you're going to die in that last two minutes, you ought to know you're getting that half percent. But it doesn't actually matter about the wattage. I didn't care about the wattage. What I cared about was, I ended up with a book. I've still got it, my wee red book, that tells me, and I've still got the turbo trainer, by the way, locked, and, and if I was daft enough to make a comeback, I would know what I would have to do in a standard computer, cheap as you like, set to 700C, 
what I would have to do on that computer, on that turbo trainer, to do a 19 minute 10, or to do X number of kilometers on the track. What I've created is, is a totally reliable index for me. So what I get is year after year, I can go in the same turbo trainer, and I know what my, uh, that turbo trainer never lies. You think you're going good, and the turbo trainer tells you, hold on, you're kidding yourself, and the turbo trainer never lies. I was talking to Matt Stevens this morning, and he recalled um, the uh, Pursuit Championships, uh, which you were, you were both at uh, World Championships, and he remembered seeing you just going on your turbo trainer for five minutes and then getting off it again and then maybe coming back a bit later and doing another five minutes because you thought that actually five minutes was what you needed to do because you were going for an individual pursuit. Just that statement made you think, well, that guy didn't train very hard. But I still won a world championships in nine minutes. In my mind, you don't see the mental con uh, contortations for me actually trying to visualise actually being in the start line, being in the start gate, before I even start my five minutes, I'm actually counting down in my head the whole beep, 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 and then bang, I'm off. And it wasn't five minutes, it was four and a half minutes. Exactly four and a half minutes, because that's how long it takes me to win a world championship. And I've got to pretend that the laps are going down and it's got to be so hard, and that has to replicate the effort that I would need. Because let's face it, specific training for specific recovery, for specific adaptation, for a specific result was totally what I, what I was aiming for. And that was almost unheard of at the time that you were doing that, that sort of um, training, that sort of training on the turbo trainer and yeah, imagining how you were doing it. And nowadays, I guess, yeah, with the advances in technology and the advances in training, that's actually quite commonplace. Well, that is commonplace. And I was huge into visualisation. Like my own, actually, had my turbo trainer in, in an old coal shed deliberately in the coal shed because it was just walls beside me, almost like it was like a horse um, in, in one of those boxes before it starts racing. It was just white. There was nothing. There was a fan in front of me. Um, there was a cassette player, which actually wouldn't play until the last 17... If I can get to 17 minutes, then I can play Don't Stop Me Now by Queen blasting out. Just to hang on to my last 20 minutes when doing a 20-minute session because the 20-minute session was very important to me because no matter what 20 minutes is what builds up that aerobic base because everything comes from my aerobic base whether it's pursuing or doing longer distance that absolute low aerobic base and it, in my mind it takes a minimum of 20 minutes to get into that state where you're stimulating that your heart your lungs um to be an aerobic beast and then the anaerobic and the extras round about that is built on that and that half percentage, if I'm in a coal hole playing Don't Stop Me Now, just to hang on, and I can hardly see the, the floors coming up and down at me and I think I'm going to die, I want to know I'm getting my half percent, and that's why it's so important to be exactly the same measured machine every week. Can we talk about um, doping? I remember seeing you talking at an event uh, years ago now where you, you said that the worst thing about doping um, was that it had taken away that sense of wonder which we used to have about cyclists and their efforts because unfortunately now there was always going to be that sort of in your mind it's amazing but is it too amazing well it's unfortunate that, that you can't take away that element of doubt 
I mean, now you've, what you've got is the, the blood passports and, and everything. Um, you, you can't say you can't, it's not possible for somebody to cheat now because it's been shown that, that that's not the case. I mean, people can still take EPO with impunity. They just can't take as much of it. Because the spike thing, and but you, people can still take some of it. So, and blood doping still can't be caught in terms of you put blood in your freezer and then, or, or your fridge or whatever it is they do, and then put some of it back in. So you can't discount the fact that somebody would do it. But I, I like to take it in face value. Because if I don't take it in face value, then I'm not watching it at all. It goes, as far as I'm concerned, what I see is how it went down. Because otherwise it's taken away my enjoyment of sport. And that's it. And because amazing athletes do amazing things now and again. And, and that's what we live for, just that you watch it thinking this could be an amazing moment. If you think you're never going to be any more amazing moments, where would you watch sport for? You watch it for the excitement, for, for the whole, just that feel, that wow factor. And that's instant. And, you know, and that's why I never watch sport on pre-record. I never watched it in pre-record. I think it was that amazing. I'd heard about it, so I don't want to watch it. And, and it, that's that. I don't know. Maybe it's a personal thing. I feel that it's gone already. Even if it's me just seeing it for the first time, it's gone into the biosphere of knowledge. I want to see it this instant for that hit of it. It's got to be live and right now, and anything could happen. Like the, the see when 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 um, when Chris Froome was running up the 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 up. Up the mountain with his shoes and everything. That was I watched that in real time. It's like wow, this is happening right now. You know that feel of right now, and I was like wow. And and, and what's going to happen next? And, and the whole excitement of it is just you know because it's got to be right now, and and that buzz that sport gives you. Um, and I refuse to have that taken away from me because I, I, I as far as I'm concerned, what sees what I get. And if I'm proven wrong and, and I'm like oh I'm just disappointed, but I refuse. I refuse to let it change my enjoyment of it. So what does the next year or so hold for you? What what plans have you got? Well, it's kind of like asking somebody at the end of the First World War what their plans for the military career is. Well, the whole Beastie project with this squashed beluga, the whole project and filming, and, and uh, I'm emotionally and spiritually drained because oh, I don't have any energy for anything. I, I do have some, some writing projects. Um, I finished, but it's not a secret that I, I kind of lost the plot for a decade, um, quite seriously. Um, and it's not like that anymore. No medication, no depressions and stuff like that, because I've changed so so much, and I've written a book called Enough, which I'm just... Uh, well, it's not good enough, because I goes, oh, good enough, just publish it, because I was fed up talking and writing about it, but it needs one more going over, and then it'll be out. So that's a project. I was so long away with that. Beastie Project, um, I'm almost needing thinking time. I'm, it is nice to have some challenge. I do have a writing challenge, but I'm thinking... And I do love cycling. I genuinely... I, I, I love a good punter in the countryside. Uh, and it's nice not having a challenge because, for the simple reason, there's nothing... There's no reason I have to be blasting up a hill or going that hard because some future time I'll have to prove myself or have to be impressive to somebody. There's absolutely nothing lined up in the future. And like I was out yesterday, uh, and this is the, the, we're talking now at the show. I was out yesterday, good blast, because I wanted to. Just because I wanted to. 
I could go as fast as I don't need to be fit for anything again, but I wanted to right now. It's a right now aspect I've got back in cycling, and just for the passion of it, because I love you know that feeling of your breathing and your and, and, and beautiful roads and hills and, and and just the right now of it is what I live for. And in fact, I actually moved to the house that I live in specifically because it goes straight to the countryside. I can do a two or three hour bike ride, zero traffic lights. I can go to a thousand feet four times in country roads and hardly pass ten cars. I moved there specifically for bike riding. First priorities. That's it. First priorities, bike riding. And and I'll go as far as to say, um, I avoid car ownership. I avoid things of great expense, expensive hobbies, because that would involve further work that's time that could be riding a bike. That is my priorities. Um, cheap out, living near the countryside, ride your bike because you love it. Sounds like a very sensible philosophy. Uh, Graham Mowbray, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So all that remains is the ruler competition, starting with the results from podcast 17.2. We asked you to work out the missing rider's name from Ned Bolting's feature on Tim Harris. The prize was a fine ruler sweatshirt. And the paragraph in question was, the house has produced a number of British road race champions, including blank, who prepared for his victory by sitting up till three o'clock in the morning, smoking cigars, drinking brandy and eating Spanish ham with Adam Blythe. The answer, of course, was Rob Hales, and the winner was Mark Cousins from Norfolk. The question this time is, Felice Gimondi won all three Grand Tours by the age of 25. Who was the only other rider at that time, which was 1968, to have accomplished that feat? The winner gets a pink ruler cap and matching pink musette. To enter, go to the editorial section of the ruler website, find the page for the podcast... All the details are there. Well, that's it from this edition, although we can't go without mentioning the winner of the 2011 Giro, Michele Scarponi. A huge and much-loved character, the kind of man that pro cycling can ill afford to lose. The reaction of his fellow professionals, the fans and team staff to his death speaks volumes about the sort of person he was. Catch you next time. Be careful out there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.